episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, in Malibu, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place where addicts get treated with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, and uh, if you are there in their hands, you will be in good hands. They make sure that your detox is comfortable, which is critical, especially if you're kicking benzos or opiates or alcohol or even cocaine withdrawal is pretty terrible. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Surfing, sound bath meditation, the Uber spiritual sweat lodge, and much, much more. If I was totally fucked, I know I would go to Aloe. And if you're totally fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Barnes & Noble? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or Google Play Store. And by the way, it is completely free. Check out CASL. They have so much stuff going on, video chatting. The only way that you will have a good experience is if you join. The pool needs to grow. Find your addict soulmate. It can work for you. CASL, the App Store and Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is lastly and most importantly brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the amazing power and passion of Dopey Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. And the reality is the more of you that participate in Dopey Podcast Patreon and kick down a few bucks, the, the more Dopey that you guys can get. Help keep Dopey happy, joyous, and free. Spend $2 a month on Patreon. We're talking about pennies a day. This week on Patreon, we have Dopey Nation legend Colleen MC, and you would not believe the Dopey that she kicks around. And it is for free on Patreon. You can listen without kicking down a few cents, but you should kick down a few cents to help me get out of the deli. I appreciate everybody that is in it. If you 
contribute more than two bucks, you get a free decal too. Dopey Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. Also, if you want any Dopey merchandise, we have new stuff coming out every moment. We are working with our friends at SRO Prints, who are all a bunch of recovering drug addicts also. And we have really cool stuff. We've got Good So Bad long sleeves just came out. We've got mugs. We've got Good So Bad unisex tank tops for all the Dopey Nation men who want to flex their guns on Dopey Nation Facebook. Anyway, support us at uh, dopeypodcast.com. I've got the crazy cool uh, psychedelic holographic stickers. Just Venmo me, and I will send you some. New stickers are coming soon. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I am Dave. And as I've been talking about, uh, last weekend I finally got my five-year coin. It was uh, was surreal. The group was very sweet. They gave me a little plaque that said beach bums. They gave me a jar of marbles because, like, they say in 12-step when you get five years, you get your marbles back, and then when you have 10 years, you learn how to use them. It's not a cliche that I love, but just the gesture was super sweet. They gave me a card. Very nice. You know, it's nice to be uh, to be celebrated and to be a part of something like that. You know, I find uh, that meeting that I go to is uh, it makes me feel good. You know, it's a beautiful meeting. Um, it's weird, though, because it's like pretty Republican and pretty conservative and pretty Long Island, like crazy fucko meeting. And if you had told me at any time that I would go to a a 12-step meeting, whether it's gay, straight, conservative, Jewish, fuckos, whatever, and that I'd feel comfortable and I'd feel somehow like I was getting a spiritual message and I would be working a program to get better, I would say you were crazy. I didn't think that it was possible for me to get better through this thing. I went to so many different types of meetings and I would leave the meetings and I would get high. Now I go to the meetings and I, and I do the program to get well. And, um, you know, when we started making Dopey, I always would shit on 12-step stuff because I thought it was funny and it was so unnatural to be a part of it. And at my core, it's still unnatural to be a part of it. But the truth is that it saved my life. So if you're struggling out there, I cannot recommend it enough. I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's a place where a bunch of freaks can go get their spiritual medicine. And, uh, and I'm so crazy, I need spiritual medicine all the time because I'm still often run by insanity, by bullshit, by pettiness, by fucking resentment. Like, I didn't realize what a resentful person I am. And if you listen to Dopey, you know that I revel in beefs, that I revel in conflict, that I revel in fucking with people. But I always thought it was just fun-loving and a good time to put people down. But it turns out that these resentments make me crazy. And, um, you know, what they say, obviously, in the program is resentments are the number one offender. So it is like I'm feeling these resentments pop up all over the place. And I need to participate in the program stuff to get rid of them because I do not want to be run by resentments. So after I got my five-year coin, my sponsor asked me to speak at his meeting. 
And and his meeting was like the most fucko meeting in the history of fucko meetings in the parking lot outside of the church in Blue Point. And I was definitely like the only Jewish guy within six square miles. And I got there and it was like, uh, you know, very much like uh, I don't even know how to describe these guys. They're they're a nice bunch of guys, obviously. I, I, I love all different kinds of people. But these guys like are not a group that I necessarily would feel like I belong to if I didn't have years of sobriety and I didn't live out here and got used to them. It's a serious, like, thuggish-looking bunch. And um, and I'm supposed to give my experience of strength and hope to these guys. And basically, I hit them with the dopey because I wanted to make them laugh, and I just start telling story after story to get them to laugh. And I find myself sitting at this meeting doing dopey. And at the end, I was like, oh, yeah, and the 12 steps set me free. And, oh, yeah, uh, the 12 steps saved my life. And, oh, yeah, you know, I go to meetings and it saved my life. And having a higher power saved my life. And I kind of, like, circled back hardcore at the end to make my message, like, right on. And Smiling Joe from last week was at the meeting. And I was like, how did I do? And he's like, you did okay. But next time, maybe not so much about heroin which I thought was funny. But I said it before, and I'll say it again. Program definitely turned me around. It saved my life. Having a higher power saved my life. Uh, Being spiritual or attempting to be spiritual and being in tune with the great frequency, as uh, I heard Mark Maron say recently, it it is something to strive for, you know, to be a part of the the bigger picture. And... um, I think it's great. I think it's a great thing to try for it because to be by ourselves is to be in danger and to be among each other is to be in a place of safety and where we can help each other be happy and joyous and free and all that good stuff. It's a beautiful thing and I'm very happy to have found my life and I'm happy to to share it with you guys even though it makes me a tiny bit uncomfortable. But I'm very excited for our guest this week. It's this dude out of uh, Long Beach, California, His name is Todd Z-Man Zalkins. He came up in the Long Beach punk scene with bands like The Fallen Idols, TSOL, and most notably, Sublime. And, um, you know, he was right there when Bradley Knoll died, when he overdosed. And uh, Todd Z-Man Zalkins was uh, a big part of that community. And his story is crazy dopey, and I don't want to ruin it by giving too much preamble so here he is, Todd Z-Man Zalkin. We have on the show this dude. His, I don't know if you guys know who he is or not. His name is Todd Z-Man Zalkins. Uh, how are you, Todd? Doing good, man. How are you? My long-winded introduction went out the window. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm good. I'm fucking good. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, if you guys know or you don't know, Todd is from Long Beach, California, and he's tied in deeply with the Long Beach punk rock scene, which led him to bands like the Falling Idols, his own band, Corn Doggy Dog, and most famously, fucking Sublime. And um, when I started doing Dopey, like, I'm, I'm a huge Sublime fan. Like, I, I have loved Sublime forever, and I got into Sublime in rehab, actually. And uh, we started making Dopey, and Chris, my partner on Dopey, died, you know, overdosed and died basically uh, two years ago, so, so a couple years into making the show. And after he died, I had it in my head that I wanted to get the guys from Sublime on the show 
because I just thought we had a parallel sort of path. You know, having to, because they went on to do Long Beach Dub All-Stars and Sublime with Rome and whatever, Romy, whatever they were doing. And I thought that would be interesting. And some dude from Sublime wrote me back and he said, yeah, they don't want to do it. And I just put it out of my head. <laughs> and then somebody who listened to the show mentioned you and mentioned your film. And uh, I watched your movie and, you know, it's a very parallel story, but your story obviously is rooted in sublime, but it's also just rooted in addiction and recovery. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Likewise. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here, man. Thank you so much for having me on as your guest. And uh, that was a perfectly, perfectly non-scripted uh, uh, fucking introduction. I love it. I was a little bit, little bit long-winded, but I've also like, I, I, um, I'm fascinated with Long Beach. Like, you grew up in Long Beach. It's like a, a puddle. It's, it's very much an isolationist scene where everybody is committed to Long Beach. And I, I only know about Long Beach through Sublime, Snoop Dogg, and the movie American History X. So how accurate are those, are those uh, worlds? I, I think that you articulated that really well. In fact, I, I live on the peninsula um, down here in, in Long Beach. And just the other day, some, some jack-off... Uh, through a, a big can of paint on this really bitchin' beautiful uh, sign that welcomes you to the peninsula. And, um, and I took a picture of it, and, and I, just, I just said something like, you know what, we here in Long Beach, we don't fuck around. We don't fuck around. If we catch you doing shit like this, you know, I would have stuffed the guy's head in, in, a, in a paint can, and that's a very non-spiritual way to be, you know, thinking or acting. But, uh, you know, when it comes to Long Beach, you've got a lot of different sections of it, but overall... For people who are certainly from here or have become rooted here, uh, it's a pretty proud town, and people are are pretty um, um, uh, loyal to it. You know, if that makes any sense. Totally. I mean, just the fact that it exists in such close proximity to LA and is so its own thing. You know, it says so much about Long Beach. You know, and the and the punk scene is so specific to that world you know and, and and it seems like that's where you blossomed as soon as you sort of started to see the music and and go to the scene and go out with people like your identity started to emerge is that right yeah there's no doubt about it and i, I gotta share this and it's it's fucking embarrassing to share this but it's like i remember when, when i when i heard uh, the uh, circle jerks album uh group sax and it just blew my blew my effing mind and then uh bad religions uh it's called you know, the red album which is how could hell be any worse i mean i a, a group of us would have shaved our heads this is a common thing for a lot of people got some freaking you know baggy clothes and 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 i went home and my brother beat the shit out of me because i shaved my head <laughs> and so so my parents were gone on a trip i'll never forget this my parents came back and they said if you turn to this punk rock shit, we're going to send you to a military academy. And um, and it's really embarrassing for me to say, but for a few years under the cover of being at home, I had to dress like I didn't want to dress. Um, and, and yet inside, I was just a, 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 it, uh, had just the most raging love and affection for for these small bands who were just killing it. And I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't stick a ring to my nose. I actually never have, but I didn't. Uh, I just wasn't able to dress the way I wanted to. I had to conform, and I fucking hate conforming. I hate you telling me what to do on any level whatsoever. And so when I was out of the house, I was able to be more of myself, and I hated that threat, man. I hated that kind of shit. 
I think that's interesting because you can always tell, like if you look in the movie, and the movie is called The Long Way Back. It's an amazing movie. I totally recommend it to the Dopey Nation. Um, you're like, you're one of them, so hardcore, but you're so not like them. You know what I mean? You were this well-spoken dude. Like, you could see you in, like, khaki shorts and a fucking button-down and looking like a preppy, but then the next minute you're, like, going ballistic with a cigar hanging out of your mouth and raging with these guys. Oh, 100%, man. It's like, I mean, for a while, a lot of people don't don't know this, but there is... <laughs> I was, if you want to call it the responsible one, to a degree, you know, and I there's a lot of years I made a pretty good income and I helped fuel the fire on a lot of levels... But, uh, but, but make no mistake, if you make fun of the way I fucking had to dress after being at the office all day, I'll punch you right in the throat. You know what I mean? It's like, no problem there. When did, when did you start getting high? Like, when did that become a thing? Or drinking or whatever, starting to escape yourself? I'm the product of a, an, uh, an alcoholic father who was absolutely fucking gnarly, six foot four. He boxed in the Marine Corps. And I got leveled by him several times as a kid. And he was, he was gassed all the time. And, um, you know, I had pulls from his beer as a really young kid, um, but I started drinking at like 12, 13, and uh, once once cocaine entered into the picture, which was not too far from there, it was on and then on a level fucking 10 once I got into the uh, prescription painkillers, which is in 1990. Right, and basically... Age 14 is when you're finding these bands also, right? It's all happening kind of at the same time. Yeah, yeah man, for sure. And, you know, being, being 14, 15, for those of you who can remember being that young, when you're seeing dudes 17, 18, 19, like I can recall, just like yesterday, these fuckers were giants. And not only were they bigger, I mean, they're already shaving and shit. You know what I mean? It's like I, I wasn't even close to a razor. I'm just a, you know, really skinny kid, but loving loving the the sounds and i love the aggression and the just do whatever the fuck you want to do i really looked up to those guys and again they scared me i'm just a kid and you know three four years difference as a little guy it's you know it's intimidating but i still fell in love with with a lot of the culture and i had uh the falling idols hands down is what introduced me to what would set the stage for my love affair of this independent really killer if you want to call it underground music here in Long Beach. Well, I, I can totally relate. The thing that's so attractive to me about the Long Beach scene is like it seems like this crazy love affair between the people in the scene. Like you ha- like all these like dudes that seem like scary guys. And I'm a Jewish guy from New York City and I grew up uh going to like ska shows and punk shows in New York City. So I was raised to kind of be like California ska is no good and California punk is no good. Uh, and it's, and it's like, you know, but also like, I, I can't imagine a scarier place for a New York city Jew to be than in long beach. Like, it just seems like that's the place where I would get the shit kicked out of me by this amazing scene of guys who are brothers. So like, I have this fear yet also like admiration for this community because it seemed so fucking close-knit. And I know that my own fear is just running me here. I'm sure they would have accepted me with open arms. Oh, dude, uh, 100%, man. And, and make no mistake, anyone was subjected to get their ass kicked, especially when you're younger and underdeveloped. And i got to share this quick story, but, I mean, a beast of a band from this town that was called TSOL. Sure. And, you know, Jack Grisham and those guys are fucking legends. And um, 
if anyone who hasn't met or know Jack and these guys, I mean, the front three, you know, Ron Emery, Mike, Mike Roach is like six foot fucking six. Grisham was huge. Ron Emery's a big guy. And really quick, I, I remember we're like 15 years old and we're drinking beer before the Spender show and we're able to sneak in. And my buddy George's like, man, tonight I'm going to kick the shit out of Jack Grisham, right? He's all drunk. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's going to work out just fucking perfect. And we get to the gate and we're all loaded. And they're up there, and on stage, these guys just, they're mammoth. They're like Shaquille O'Neal type fucking big, right? And I'm sitting there going, whoa, man, these guys are these guys are gnarly. And I go, hey, George, it's time to kick Jack's ass. And he goes, well, maybe not tonight, man. Maybe <laughs> yeah, I love that. And then the other thing that I think is so interesting is, like, you're not, you, you became a singer in a band, but you were just, like, there, hanging out. Like, how did you get so enmeshed in this thing? Well, it, you know, we mentioned at the top or a few minutes ago that The Falling Idols is a band that, uh, you know, I was very close to in that, um, you know, I started hanging out with those guys at a young age, and uh, I got into a lot of trouble as a result of that kind of shit. But the songs that they, you know, the singer of The, Van of the Falling Idols is now, you know, he's been the singer of The Vandals for many years, the bass player, Randy Bradbury, is the bass player for Pennywise, and Trey Pangborn, who's one of the finest guitarists ever uh, to come from this town. I mean, he played the Short Bus and Long Beach Sub All-Stars. And so, you know, I just fell in love with their music. And when it, there came a point in time later on, this is after Brad had passed, and I'll never forget, i got to share this story, man. We were on Mushrooms. I was with Eric Wilson, the bass player from Sublime, and I was with Trey Pangborn, and we're fucking snorting mountains of coke, chewing mushrooms and just drinking in it, it, just like the, the, the never-ending river of booze. And I had this kiddie pool on my deck, and we're just absolutely just gone. We're just in a different planet. And, we and Snoop Dogg at the time was huge, right? He was just coming in. This is like, in the earth, this is like I don't know, 90 fucking 4, 95. And then Eric says something like, if you had a band Z, man, what would you call it? And I just said, I go, man, what about corn doggy dog and the half pound? <laughs> and, and, Eric, and Eric Wilson has got one of the greatest laughs you've ever heard. And I love to make him laugh back in the day. He laughed uncontrollably, partly because of the mushrooms, but he literally had snot, spit coming out of his fucking mouth. He laughed so hard for hours and we never forgot. It's like, okay, one of these days we'll have a, we'll have a band called Corn Doggy Dog and the Half Pound. And the, the rest is kind of history. And you did. But, but what made you, like, you were just so close with these guys. Like, how did you become like this sort of leader of the sublime militia kind of thing. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> you, know, you know, people people say that, and I don't think that there's any uh, plaque I've gotten for that or, or anything, you know, this leader of the sublime posse. There was a lot of, a lot of dudes who, who were equally, if not more important, far more important than me. Um, I was around during a time where um, things were getting hot and heavy with the band, and... Um, they were growing, and I was spending a lot of time with them, and I loved spending time with them. And the, the, the inner circle at the time was real tight. It wasn't just, you know, they had lots of friends and stuff, but I had the privilege of, you know, being able to hang out with them intimately um, for quite a while. And so a lot of it's the partying. I feel with a lot of that, but uh, um, I had, uh, at the time, I had really good relationships and a great deal of love for those guys. And you grew up, like, down the street from the bass player, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, for many years, I lived probably, you could almost throw a rock and hit his house. He was uh, on a street called Covina. I was on Laverne, right in the heart of Belmont Shore. And um, 
And so I, this is when we're really young, man. God, like eight, nine, ten, and um, and then a few years later, I moved just a couple blocks away. But Long Beach is one of those things where you, everyone just kind of knows everybody, especially in that little circle of these keg parties and madness and fucking bands going off uh, in little in little uh, compartments of the Belmont Shore world. What was, I mean, one thing in the film that they discussed a bunch was that the Long Beach drug scene was insane. So can you paint a picture? Well, um, <laughs> paint a picture. How how much fucking canvas do we have to paint? Right, and right. it's like, um, I got to, I always like to be brutally honest in, in, in all my affairs today, but I'll tell you, I was actually scared as a kid to jump in and to put my toes in the pool. Um, when it came to the drugs, it's, uh, I didn't start with the opioids, but I mean, um, I saw dudes who were 17, 18, already sticking needles in their arm. And these were guys, there were, these guys were musicians that I just, um, I just looked up to and I, and I had so much love for that, but I'll tell you that shit scared me and it was running kind of rampant on the, uh, you know, the underground, if I'll call it underground, but the local punk scene, a lot of these guys were discovering the junk, man. And, um, well, I wouldn't call that partying. I call that kind of enslavement. Um, totally. I would refer to that as, but the partying, if we're going to talk about partying, man, the cocaine, the booze and shit like that, I fucking wanted to be a part of that so badly. And I, I, I didn't dip a toe in. I jumped all in, man. And, and at the same time as like, because I, I mean, whenever I look at my own drug history, like it was never really partying for me. Like it just wasn't. It was always just like, once in a while, it'd be fun smoking weed with friends, whatever, but it was more like medication. It was more like medicating my crazy brain. But like, I feel like in this scene, you have these people who are partying hardcore, and then at the same time, the needle and the opiates and the pills are, are coming in from the other side, and they kind of like smash together. Like, was the dope always like big in the scene, just kind of swept to the sides, or it came in? Yeah, it was one of those things where it came in. Um, it wasn't always prevalent. And um, I was kind of, you want to call it, more part of the second generation of the music scene there. The first generation are guys like those cats that uh, that you and I both know, like Mike Mart, who is absolutely one of the most finest musicians I've ever known. And um, he would be more first generation. You know, his band techs and the Horseheads and, and guys who ran in his crew, you know, they're older more established and they were getting after it you know earlier than we were but it came in oh god early 80s and then it became really really fucking uh, apparent like late 80s early 90s and you started you didn't touch an opiate until 1990 you said when yeah. did you start noticing that uh that the band was getting fucked up on them well you know bud had had his issues um uh and he had kicked uh, a number of times. Uh, it, it, really, Brad came into that drug, I, I think, even after Bud, and it really kind of proclaimed ownership over him. Um, I think that the... Uh, I don't think I know that it did, because I would see him try to kick one of the most heartbreaking things, and you've seen it before. One of the most heartbreaking things is seeing a friend of yours who's really dope sick, who wants to get off, and is trying to get off, and doesn't have a solution for it. Yeah, I mean, that, that was me, you know what I mean? Like, I tried to kick so many times. I wanted a solution, but I didn't want to stop, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. I, and, and I, so pre-Brad's addiction, 
to heroin, was he just partying with you? Like, he's doing coke, he's drinking, he's tripping, it's kind of fun? Oh, hell yeah, man. I mean, you know, lots of beer, lots of booze, and, and uh, certainly weed. And by the way, I gotta say this, I fucking hated weed. I thought weed was just bullshit. Weed put me, all, this is me on weed, smoking fucking whatever. Hit, take a bong hit, I'm ordering two large peaches, I go home and pass out. That was it. For me, it was booze, cocaine, and then when the opioids hit, it was on, but... Um, yeah, Brad was a lot of fun when he wasn't owned by that shit. And, and, and I believe I was a lot of fun, too, before that shit owned me. I no, had you, fun. You seem, you seem like you were all fun. You seem like you were a, a barrel of monkeys fun. Um, and it seemed like the saddest thing, you know, as a, you know, I came to Sublime as a fan way late. You know what I mean? I didn't know anything about Sublime in the peak, you know, the Sublime gaining steam. When uh, when the videos started to come out, like when What I Got came out, I was a, a musician, like a bad musician and, a, you know, a aspiring songwriter, not particularly prolific. I was like, wow, What I Got is a fucking amazing song. You know, it's just like a catchy, amazing song. I was like, maybe this band has something. And then, like, Santeria came out, and I was like, I liked, I liked it, you know what I mean? Like, as just a, as an observer, I was like, well, they might be from the West Coast, and they're not real reggae music, and they're not real this, real that. I was like, I kind of like it. And the next thing you know, Brad's dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. like, what a fucking crazy scene. What a crazy, terrible trajectory from my yeah, perspective. Yeah. Obviously, that wasn't to be in it. Yeah, man. You, you know, you, you're, co- you're certainly you're commenting on their most on their most famous work, which 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 is what really made them a self titled album. But uh, I got to tell you, my my favorite album is probably Robin the Hood. It's just the experimentation. Um, I mean, STP and um, STP just. Abs- I want to drive my fucking car through a wall. You know, when I first heard that, and um, that album as a collective, this is mad science project, you know, and, um, and I know that Brad was having struggles during that time, big time too, but uh, their whole body of work, I think, is this, uh, it was a very unique chemistry that they had, and, and it certainly set the tone for a lot of bands who have done their best to copy, but it'll never be duplicated, if that makes any sense. Totally. I mean, I wound up circling back once I got into treatment, I, I like I was in treatment and I like I remember I like got kicked out of treatment and then I went back into treatment and they made me go into some guy's room and he had Stand By Your Van or Stand By Your Band. Is that the right name of the EP? Yes, yeah, Stand and, By Your Van. And uh and he had a CD player in the bathroom and I took a shower and I put it on and I was like, holy shit. And I was just like, I love this band. And it all sort of just happened for me as a, a you know a heroin addict trying to get better hearing their their story so when i hear about you kind of coming up with them like traveling on the warp tour and the sort of toxicity of the scene (laughs) it's like it it blows me away like what was that period like like when when they're coming into like date rape obviously was big if you guys don't know this todd played the date rapist in the date rape video was that an honor or was that off-putting or how was that I think it was an honor at the time. It's probably been a curse ever since. Every time <laughs> I, you know, it's just lately, it, 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 people like reach, reach out to me and say, Todd, what, what do you know about what's going on with Ron Jeremy? It's like, I don't fucking keep in touch with that guy. He's in, you know, he's being arrested for, you know, multiple counts of rape, et cetera. But, um, your buddy, war- your buddy, Ron. Oh yeah. My, that's, yeah. How's your buddy Ron doing? Um, the war, the war tour though, uh, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the best stories I have, uh, from this time is when 
Miguel, who's you know co-founder of Skunk Records, he's the he's the jump. Uh, you know, Michael Happel did all, all the recordings and was the band manager for years. And he calls me up, and we're here on the West Coast, and, and he's like, "You want to go to New York?" I'm like, "What the fuck's going on?" He's like, uh, "Brad misses Louie." I'm like, "Fuck yeah, I'll go." So we packed up Louie. We got had to get him shots and all this shit. We're racing to the airport. I've got about an ounce of coke. I used to wear a long speedo underneath shorts, right? This is before all the, all the, all the, uh, 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 you know, nine eleven shit, yeah, yeah, all that bullshit. So I have got freaking all these vials, freaking just literally glued to my nuts. I've got powder in bags. I mean, it looks like I've got freaking twelve packs of big league chew in my crotch. And we get through security, and Michael, Miguel, he fucking had a grip of, of skunk weed. He smelled like a like, like Cheech and Chong's van. And we get to the plane, and I've got these porto mags, Hustler. I'm holding up Hustler. I'm snorting coke in the bathroom. I'm asking the stewardesses, I'm like, hey, check out my pipe, you know, right here. And, 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 and the people in the plane are like, dude, you can't do that. And I'm just, and my, and we just thought it was the funniest thing ever, you know, looking at porno mags, and, and I'm, you know, doing my shit in the bathroom. It was a fucking disaster. But once we got there to the war tour, it was a true disaster. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I poured powdered fuel all over the party and, uh, and they got kicked off the tour. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, at the time, like, were they strung out on opiates? Was Brad strung out on opiates? Like, how was he dealing with that? Or was it not in the picture? <laughs> at that particular time, uh, I would have to say, yeah, they're, they're, uh, he would cut, he was able to kick for short times. And then there was times that it just seemed to go on forever. And, I can't speak per se. He would never, I only saw him, you know, shoot up once in front of me. That was in San Francisco. Um, but on the warp tour, I do know this. He was very happy that I had my massive bag of pills and, um, and cocaine. I think everyone was glad at the time, but they weren't so glad two days later. You were traveling with, uh, with, with what kind of, what kind of opiates were you bringing to the warp tour? At that particular time, it was Norco. I had switched from um, the Vicodin. Norco packed more of a punch. It had less acetaminophen. I could take more of it. Those little yellow, I called them little orphans. And I love those orphans, and, and their home was in my fucking throat, you know? The and fucked up thing to me is that, you know, you were the... I mean, you were probably going to get there either way. You were this partier, and you were this crazy personality, and obviously it was vested in pain um, from your childhood. You know, you, I mean, from the movie, it was, you know... and. We might as well talk about it now. I know it's taking us off the beaten path of Sublime, but it's like... Um, I don't mind getting off the beaten path of Sublime. It's all good, dude. No, I know. It's just... <laughs> it's it's more like your childhood had profound pain in it. You know, your dad was this alcoholic, and you suffered from molestation, right? I mean... Tremen yeah, uh, tremendously. I. Um, you want me to comment on that, or you want to keep going? I have nothing to say. I need you to say it. I, I'm, I'm just trying... I want your story... I, I want to honor your story. And uh, I... You know, I love the sublime aspect of your story, but your story would be just as important without the sublime aspect. It just happened that you were in that world. It's just a... Yeah, it's a, it's a big part of my story, but it's not the entire story. And thank you. Thank you for, for having that respect. I appreciate that, man. Um, you know, uh, I, I struggled whether or not to... to be that transparent in the film, which is a talk about being um, abused uh, physically and sexually as a kid. Um, it was very hard for me to do, and I'm glad that I did it because I cannot tell you uh, how many people it's helped. I've had grown men bigger than me weep in my arms after I've given a talk going, dude, when I saw that in the film, 
it was like, you know, me too, and, and how can I heal from this? Um, my story is is that it, it wasn't just a camp counselor. It was a rampant thing that was in our neighborhood. I don't want to comment further other than it wasn't an isolated incident, and I was fairly traumatized over a period of few years, and, uh, and it was fucked. In fact, when I got sober, Dave, I, I, I got to tell you, I don't think I even remembered or thought about being molested in decades because I, I had suffocated it and medicated through it all for 24 years, right? So as I'm coming to, you get these fucking memories that are, that you're, you're like, how do I stay sober through this? And, you know, I got a lot of outside help, man. Of course. I mean, like, what I was going to say, which, which, you know, was that you went to school and you got injured, and that's when the opiates came into your life. But it was really fuel on this total addict, alcoholic, you know, uh, architecture. You know, I mean, trauma, is it births these things, and then these different things come into our lives, and all of a sudden we're on these crazy paths. Um, do, do, do you think you would have hit opiates and pills had you not been injured at San Diego State? You know what? Um, there's no doubt about it. I, 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 and I also have to share this, man. I think that um, absent the injury, absent going through childhood trauma, et cetera, I still would have became who I am, which is a guy who has a hellacious appetite for, for narcotics and alcohol. It would have been my path anyways. But what I've come to learn as, I, as we take the dive into cause and conditions, I can tell you that going through those traumas did not fucking help any. In fact, it, in fact, what it did was it, it, it created more fuel to my uh, appetite for, for all the stuff that was killing me. That's all. Right. It's like all of us, anybody who suffers from this affliction has difficulty in our own skin, right? It's like that's the root of it. And when you talk about serious trauma and the stuff that happened to you, it's like that times a billion. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, man. And, and, and you don't want to think about being... In times of being helpless and being um, afraid, the fear of just being a little kid and all that. And so when I grew up uh, and I got bigger and I got stronger and I got tougher, I was like, you're, you're not going to fuck with me. And, I, and you know, it's kind of like Joe Pesci. He'll come back with a fucking bat. If you're going to beat him with a bat, you can be able to knife all that shit. It's like I would go to any lengths. And I've had moments of extreme rage that I'm not proud of. Um, so I have to avoid anger at all, at all costs the best I can. But um those types of events, when you're sober and you're starting to experience them again, um, reliving it, it's, it's so painful. And I say, well, God, no wonder it was easy to drink and use. No wonder. No fucking wonder. Um, but you take that stuff away, I'm still, in my DNA, I'm an alcoholic. I'm wired that way. And I believe in that. And I would have self-medicated over, I don't know, the fucking Rams losing the Super Bowl. Who knows? I, no, I get you. Um, and forgive me for jumping around, but I think it's important to jump around in this kind of a story yeah, because, man. like, you need all these different threads to get there. So we're, I want to go back to the warp tour, though. At what point do you feel like shit is getting out of control? Like, did it did it start to get out of control yet, or was it still way down the path? With with my addiction, yeah. Uh, no, um, I know that I would push it over the edge and push the envelope all the time. Um, I actually played a pretty big role in helping them get kicked off, if that makes any sense. I was, I was probably not an asset. I was probably not an asset. I, I was fun for a while, and then I created a lot of problems, and, and I have to own that. Um, but we all took part. When the drugs are working, and this is like in, fuck, what is this, 94 or something? Dude, I'm only four years in, man. Then the drugs are delivering that, 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 that beautiful, warm comfort of that blanket that I love, 
fuck, dude, it's when that shit stops working is when it gets real and scary, and that blanket's no longer a blanket. It becomes a shredded piece of nothing, and I'm cold, man. So, uh, yeah, I, I would uh, – the drugs were working for me. So officially at that time, there was no surrender in me, and I did not think it was a problem, but everyone else would say, dude, you're fucking nuts. Well, what's the deal with you? And you, you were, it was working, so it wasn't like, this is fucked. It was like, what an adventure I'm on, and I'm going across the country, and I'm seeing my favorite music, and I'm a part of it, right, at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, man. You know, absent really any, any real consequences, believe it or not, I've fucking never been to jail, but if life were fair, I'd be deader in jail. No, um, I got There's you. plenty of times I should have been arrested with massive amounts of narcotics, guns, powder, pills, etc., um, but yeah, man, when the things are working for me, there is no human being that can tell me it's a problem. It, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, yeah, you're right. There's no fucking way. man. I'm not wired that way. No, I get it. I get it. Um, now basically it wasn't long after that, that Brad wound up dying, right? It was pretty, it was pretty yeah, close to them. Yeah. They, they wrapped up when I first heard, heard little bits, cause I, was, I had the privilege and, and the honor of receiving some rough, dub tapes and those of you listening no I'm not going to send you these tapes to you they're not for sale but they are uh, rough recordings of, of some of the brilliant music that was coming out of Willie Nelson's ranch in Texas that's where they recorded that self-titled album and uh, and you know Brad passed away I believe what in May of 96 and um, and he passed away before that album being released it was released a few months later and I was with the band on the night that Brad passed away and it was without question, one of the worst days of my life. Right, and uh, in the story, he, he, the, the story that I heard from your movie was that he OD'd uh, basically right around the drum, right around Bud, right? And he called you in the middle of the night, and you were passed out, wasted, whatever. Yeah, yeah, they're booking, they're, I was staying with the booking manager, Blaine Kaplan, who was just a few blocks away from where the band was staying, and um, from, to, my, to my understanding, um, Brad tried calling. It was very, very late. I had been snorting and chewing and popping and drinking, and I was just, I'm like, I'll just get to him in the morning, man. I'll just get to him in the morning. And um, it's one of those things for a lot of years, I, I, I wish I would have been there for that phone call, for sure, because I don't know what he wanted to talk about. I think he just wanted to be around a friend because everyone else was kind of hitting the hay, and uh, maybe we can't uh, change what happened, you know? Well, it's weird. It's like the, the, the day that, the night before Chris died, my friend who did Dopey with me, who started it with me, he was reaching out to me the whole night. Um, and I was talking to him until like midnight. And then I was like, I got to go to bed. And, I, and he reached out one more time and I, you know, I was sleeping. In the morning, I wrote him back. He wrote me back and he was dead a few hours later. So I could really relate to your experience with this and, and like you want to be able to have changed something that happened and yet there is no way to change what happened and it's just like you know it's it's just that's the deal with addiction whether it's you know Bradley Knoll of Sublime super genius if it's Chris from Dopey if it's anybody you know what I mean like the people around them want to have been able to jump back in this capsule and be like, maybe I could have said this thing and, and we can't say anything. You know what I mean? All we could do is live with it. Yeah, man. And I, I want to first say I'm, I'm really sorry for, 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 for the loss of, of your partner in crime and, and your buddy. And it's important that I say this, that is um, any loss of life due to uh, addiction is that no one's loss. Uh, no one's life is more important than another. Meaning, um, 
your bro's life was just as important as Brad's. And the people out there who lost their son or daughter last night are just as important as Brad and Chris, right? And it's just, um, to me, it's just like, you know, Brad just happened to have beautiful songs that, that made him famous and stuff. But a human being's a human being, and a loss over this, there is no one that, like, wins the award for, oh, we lost so-and-so. I, I'm trying to bring it down to the humanness part of this, is that it's unnecessary that people die from this, but it's unfortunate that it does. And um, I was unable to grieve it because I was... We don't grieve anything or process anything while actively using. We don't process anything, and we're not growing from anything when we're actively using. So it took me a long time to face all that shit. Totally. No, I get it. And uh, I was sober when he died, and I still, like, was total trauma, shock, crazy. My other best friend had died six weeks before him. So, like, and my other best friend was, like, the biggest sublime fan in the world, and me and this guy, whose name was Todd, ironically, would drive around Long Beach in a you know a defunct cop car, listening to Sublime, listening to Garden Grove, like feeling like we were part of it, you know. So like, <laughs> I, I'm I'm just endlessly fascinated with this thing, and I, I want to ask one more kind of Sublimey Bradley question, just to serve my own curiosity, you know. I'm a crazy Bob Marley fan, you know. I love Bob Marley. I love early Bob Marley. And I could tell that Bradley did, too. Like, he covered Jailhouse, which is a very, like, you know, not, you know, well-known song. And you can hear the the Bob Marley influence on him. But was he really into the acoustic medley from the box set? Because it sounds like he, that like, all of my favorite stuff, it sounds a little like the acoustic medley. Did you ever know anything about that? That's a really interesting question. What I can say for sure is that uh, he and, and all the members of the band had a very, uh, had a massive affection for Bob Marley and music that came from, you know, from Jamaica, right? And um, I know that uh, that, was, that was a big turning point when he discovered that music. He was with his father on a sailing trip. I believe that they were either in the Virgin Islands or I've, I'm not sure if it was Jamaica, but it was somewhere in the Caribbean type thing. And, and that's what started the love affair with that music was him being with his father. Well, it's uh, amazing music either way. And I know, then um, the other personal thing that happened with me is that when I was deep in my heroin addiction in the beginning of it, I was making a TV show in New York. And I think in 2000 or 2001, the Long Beach Dub All-Stars came through Randall's Island with the Warp Tour. And I went out there to cover it, and I interviewed Long Beach Dub All-Stars, and I, inter- I interviewed uh, NoFX, and I was wasted on heroin. You know, I was a fucking disaster. And I remember sitting with Bud and Eric. They seemed like they were out of their minds also. And, like, there was no, there was no communication. And it was like, what a, what a crazy thing. Like, the Warp Tour has an edge to it in itself, and to be fucked up on drugs at the Warp Tour and to be in that scene also just I don't know there's something weird about it um in terms of me talking to you like that I feel like sort of on the periphery of it were you did you ever tour you toured with Long Beach Dub Stars for a while right oh hell yeah those are some of our best shows because you know the Long Beach Dub Stars had a had a pretty good following man and we got to play some sold out venues with them and it was a fucking massive honor and a, and a massive privilege to to be opening up for them, um, which we did a number of times in some wonderful cities, Portland, Seattle, 
Scottsdale, uh, San Diego. We, we, we played some bitchin' venues. Um, and uh, that was a, a very special time uh, for my little band that was just having fun playing Fallen Idol songs and, you know, some fun music that we like to play. It was a fucking honor uh, to rock in front of a couple thousand people. And they, had to, and they got to do it wherever they went. And I just can't imagine how cool that must be. It's amazing. And, and, but that's also where, like, is that when the drugs really started to ramp up for you? Like, is that when things started um, to, to, like, what was it like? Yeah. Uh, the ramp up on the Norco was, was, you know, we all know, or for those of you who don't know or are listening, addiction and alcoholism is a progressive disease. Mine was progressing where the amounts of Norco was, I was really getting scared. Of, here I am trying to be health conscious. I'm like, I'm really concerned about the acetaminophen, maybe fucking up my liver, et cetera. But I was actually one of the very early, if you want to call it subscribers or prescribed individuals for OxyContin. And I think that was in 96 or maybe as late as 97. But uh, it was a new drug on the market here. And it was already ravaging the East Coast. And what I, I can tell you like it was yesterday, the moment I took OxyContin, I took that drug, I pulled over on the side of the freeway, it hit me so fucking hard, a couple of tears came out the side of my eyes, and I literally, and I'm not, I was, I'm not a big religious person, I said, this is exactly how God and Jesus Christ want me to feel the rest of my life. And, uh, and that was, I, I think that was my official turning point. It was going to turn anyway with the Norco, but the discovery of Oxycontin, and then of course fentanyl, it was, it was over for me, man. How old were you when, when you had that Oxy experience? I'm going to say, hang on, so 20, like 28 or 29, and I came into recovery when I was 39. Well, it's interesting, though, because you also started using when you were 14. So we're saying 15 years in, you have that experience, like, this is how I want to feel. Like, you're on the periphery drinking, doing tons of coke, taking pills. 15 years later, you find your real drug of choice, which is pretty crazy. (sighs) Yeah, it's funny. I've never even thought about it that way. And I appreciate you you shedding that perspective. You know, for me, it was always uh, uh, drink a grip of alcohol and then bing, the bell goes off and cocaine has to be there. And and 99% of the time, it was always on my person. I was not the guy fucking racing around trying to locate it. I knew that I had to pack my fucking beak. I had to pack my beak, right? But... You are right. Like the holy grail moment uh, on the pills. And I got to tell you, I didn't drink much when I was on the pills. I, the pills gave me everything. It gave me everything. The delivery system was so effective, I did not need uh, to drink much alcohol. And I didn't, I, I drank very intermittently when I was on the pills. It's like, it's really, your story is so crazy also because you basically were living, you know, the drug addict lives the classic double life. And you were living like the quadruple life. You had a, you were, you had a straight job. You had the band. You had coke and alcohol. You had pills. You had an injury, so it seemed like you were supposed to. And all of those things kind of leaned on each other, right? Like that, it was okay almost because it was next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. God, I, I, I fucking love your, uh, your ability to paint these pictures because I actually just shed some more stuff about me that I was never really thought about. I think that. Um, I know that I often had to be a chameleon. Here's the thing is that I, I enjoyed making some dough. I don't want to have to rob you or stick up a fucking bank because I like, I always liked excess of everything. And so, you know what, man, I, 
Yeah, I fucking owned an insurance brokerage for God's sake. For That's what I'm saying. It's crazy. And uh, and then it's funny. I'd have a change of clothes, and I'd show up to go hang out with Eric and Bud. And those guys I always had my you know the baggy shorts, my t-shirt. Get this shit off of me. It's not how I want to look anyway. And and you know what it is, man. A lot of it is is that this identity crisis. I just I have to I had to play these fucking parts and play these acting roles just to get by. And then once the disease owned me, I officially become this really bad actor who's thinking he's pulling it off. Sure. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. And it's like the, the best thing about recovery, I mean, for me, like I, I know that for me, it was that I found myself. You know what I mean? Like, and myself was so far away and I could enjoy myself, which I never had th- that ability to do because there was so much suffering and there was so much masquerading and so much bullshit. And at the end, it was like, holy shit, I could be myself. And I get that sense. That's what happened to you. Uh, through a very, very long and winding, crazy road. Um, I want to hear more about that fucking end period, that last 10 years. Like, oh, God. Because it yeah. seems like it was very dark and very transformative. Yeah, it, it, no doubt about it. The, you know, I always refer to it as the, the drug officially claimed ownership of me. It, it, it completely, it had the pink slip to every fiber in, in my being. And, um, I was always scared to death of, of getting dope sick. And I had a couple of moments where, where I ran out and I'm calling relatives, friends of relatives who had, who had surgeries. I'm driving 180 miles to go pick up a bag of Vicodin just to get me through the fucking day until I could get the oxys the next day. So I had doctors could no longer satisfy what I needed. So I had a legitimate doctor. I had a black market doctor getting prescribed 400 total oxys a month cash and carry with one of these doctors and a dealer on top of that. You know, I'm taking 16 to 18, 80 milligram oxys a day, two to three fentanyl sticks, chewing Norco on top of it. And so, and by this time, and this is like in 2004, 2005, 2006, I just, um, I wanted out, man. I fucking went to, did a rapid detox, Keith Richards style, paid 10 grand, had my blood cleaned out. And I was off pills for a couple of weeks, and boom, the, the obsession returned. Um, but uh, you know what, man? I, for me, the very end of days was when I was, um, I was literally starting to see people in bushes outside of my house. And uh, fueled by cocaine and the uh, morphine and pills and, and all the other shit I was taking, I was starting to see people. And I'm calling the cops, and the cops are like, there's no one here, man. Can we come talk to you? And I remember crumbling on the tile of my floor in my cold San Clemente home. I'm alone, I'm in a ball, and I'm literally going, um, it's over for me, man. It's, if I don't, something doesn't change, my mom's going to get that fucking phone call that her son died, and I thought that that, I'm so thankful that that was the one thing I hung on to, that that would be the most selfish thing I could ever do as a human being, which is to bail, having not tried one last time to get off the shit. You said so many things that I have a bunch of questions about. First Go. of all, fentanyl sticks. What are, tell me, what are fentanyl sticks, and how did you get them? Well, obviously, the fentanyl games change massively these days. They're mixing with heroin and all that shit. Um, and I need to be very clear. I wasn't a needle guy. I, I, I only shot cocaine one time. I'm scared of needles. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where were you when you shot cocaine? What was that story? I, I was in Long Beach in my shitbag studio, <laughs> studio apartment with a couple of uh, wonderful punkers who were older than me. I'm not going to name their names. And I love these guys to this day. In fact, one of them is gone. And I loved him very, very much. Um, uh, but I was, I just wasn't a needle guy. And, um, 
you know, to come back to what your what's the fucking question again? I'm First sorry. question. Now I want to know is tell me the story when you shot coke because that was the only time you ever injected drugs. Yeah, in fact, I think that's what that song "Blue Highway" by Billy Idol's about. <laughs> I believe I believe it's about shooting coke. Walk with an electro glide on the blue highway. I I can tell you this when I did it, and and, and I'm a big. <laughs> Oh God, talking about sex. Who doesn't love great sex? But I, mo- I thought that shooting coke was like a massive orgasm times 30. And and thank God I drank so much more booze that night. I kind of forgot about what that was like in a way, but I didn't want to do it again because my arms were all bruised and then missing my veins. Right, so it was the fear of needles that never led you to shooting anything again, even though you loved shooting coke. I have a most ridiculous uh, fear of needles, uh, and you people on your show probably laugh at me, but I literally have to be uh, almost in a dark room. You have to hold me down. I'll rip off a fucking bar off a hospital bed. I get so scared of that shit. And um, it comes from, uh, it just, it really stems from those bruised arms and a childhood experience of having a gnarly thick gauge needle get jabbed at me a bunch of times. And, and you know what? That's also reason, uh, uh, it, there's no doubt I'm alive because I was not an IV user. But I almost killed myself orally and nasally anyway. Um, I have no judgment. No judgment about you not <laughs> using needles. I, I'm I, not feeling that at all, dude. I, I'm just being transparent. But the fentanyl sticks, you asked me what those things were. Um, I was getting those from a friend of mine who, uh, and he would have, he, he's dead now, but he would have killed me to find out that he, I was getting them from for $10 a lolly, these lollipops. It yes. tastes like candy. 800 micrograms, and I shoot you not, those things could sell for 80 to $90, easy. And I would get, uh, I don't know, 40 to, 40 to 80 of those a month. I was chewing a couple of those a day along with all the oxys. And it just wasn't enough, man. I couldn't walk around without this prolific sweating and just, if you saw me, you'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? I mean, because one eye would be over in left field, another eye is in outer space. You'd just be like this. All my friends tell me, like, dude, you're just fucking gone. You're gone, dude. When I was uh, when I was using tar, the way we would use tar for a little bit, like when we were in mixed company, is we would we would put it in Afrin bottles and shoot it up our nose. Like we'd mix it with water in the Afrin <laughs> bottle and squirt the the liquid tar up our nose. And we always like thought we were really getting away with something because oh yeah, I have a cold, I need Afrin, whatever. Uh, with the fentanyl lollipops, was that a thing? Like, you'd have a lollipop in your mouth, and some dude would be like, "What's? why are you fucking sucking on a lolly? Like, did that ever happen? Dude, I, that is so fucking funny. Here's the thing. I don't do... I, 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 I need to get what I need quickly. I would take... You're supposed to suck on that thing and let it, let it dissolve. I would chew that fucking thing up on the side of my cheek. It would be done and dusted within about 30 seconds. I used to have... I had a bunch of cars... I'll never forget, I had this big fuck you BMW asshole car I had for business, you know, you know, to pick up clients in. What a bunch of bullshit. So whenever I take it to get it cleaned, the fucking guy would be like, sir, do you need all these? And it'd be like <laughs> 39, these, these bare sticks, right? With the little <laughs> right. fucking 800 microgram. I'm like, nah, dude, you can toss those. <laughs> so he'd be like, you have a lot, you obviously have a lollipop problem, a sugar problem. This fucking, yeah, you love that's- candy, dude. Yeah, dude, I love candy too. Um, so uh, I love that. That's funny, and I like I like. You see, my one of my favorite things about Dopey is it's like the idea was like we went through hell, 
and now we uncover the mystery and we can have a good laugh at this ridiculous situation that we were in. So I appreciate that cathartic, great laughter coming out of you. It's, it's such a joy. You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole point. We wouldn't be doing this, and I don't mean dopey. I mean being sober if there wasn't a good time, an adventure, an opportunity for fun, right? Right back at you, man. And I got I to gotta tell you that... I've done a lot of interviews over the last several years and um, the way you handle your shit and just the authenticity, it's a joy doing this with you, man. I, I often, you know, often you'll get people interviewing you and they'll, they'll, they'll pretend that they've read your book and they've read like the fucking back of it or they, or that they know something about your story and, and, and you're just well thought out. And I appreciate the, you mentioned the joy part. I got to tell you, I never thought I could be joyful ever again. And, um, you know what? We are able to laugh. It's a common thread that we share is that we can laugh about our shared pain. And um, that's very important that we're able to do that. It's miraculous. I mean, there is no sense in getting sober if you're not going to enjoy your life. You know, like, if, like we are not a glum lot. If, if, if there is no fun, stay on drugs. The point is that there can be fun. And drugs are so miserable and, and don't go anywhere. Um, now, you're... you're pill use was so prolific that when you finally went for help, the dude was like, the doctor was like, I never saw anybody who had it as bad as you. Like, do you yeah. think that's overdoing it, or do you think that's pretty fucking accurate? Now, actually, yeah, Dr. Daniel Hedrick, he and his whole staff, they've, they've commented through the years that um, they were just tripping out as far as... Um, you know, and I don't, this isn't a fucking bragging right, but like, dude, you're on so much of this shit for so long. It's going to take you a really long time until that thing called comfort in your own skin is going to happen. And dude, I didn't sleep my first fucking 44 days. Dude, I checked in on February 17th. I got three hours of sleep on April 1st. Fucking terrifying. And, 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 I, and I'm not shitting you. At day 50, had I not slept, there was a barrel to the temple. I was done. I was done, dude. I'm going to three to five meetings a day, just shaking and slobbering and looking at all these happy fucking recovering people. And there's, it's very hard to be grateful and happy when your skin crawls. It's really hard. So I was angry. I hated myself. And uh, I wanted to rape and take your joy, which I couldn't do. It's going to take a long time to find. Not to mention, they were like throwing bucketfuls of Seroquel at you and it was still <laughs> not working, right? It was like you're throwing, you know, buckets of Seroquel at you. Massive amounts. I think it was like 800 milligrams of Seroquel. And I, I literally, I would literally bounce off of the walls in the hospital in my gown, just drooling. <laughs> I would fall down. And they're like, he's still not sleeping. The doctor's like, I can't give him any more. I actually asked him, and I thought this was a possibility. I said, I'll, I'll fucking, I'll max out my credit cards. Can you, can you induce a fucking uh, coma? Like, can you put me under for like a week just so I can sleep? He's like, I wish I could, but that's just something we can't legally do. Well, your sleeplessness was profound, but all people kicking, anybody kicking opiates, like, wants to go under. It's like, put me under, let me be done, I can't take it anymore. Um, but I fast-forwarded a little too much, because I want to hear what was the, the thing that made you seek help? What was the final straw? Well, it's really important to, to point out that for a long period of time, the drugs and the alcohol, did, they no longer worked. I can even tell you, they say, you know, recovery, it's, it's really important for us to remember our last drink or last drunk, whatever. And it was Valentine's Day 
It was uh, February 14th, three days before I called the treatment. I'm watching the Red Hot Chili Peppers win album of the year, that stadium, Arcadium, whatever the fuck, and they're playing the song Snow. And I love I loved that band. I love I always love the Chili Peppers. And all these fucking people on TV, they're so happy, and I'm just dead inside. I'm dead, and I cannot get happy. Joy is so far gone. I haven't, like, laughed legitimately in years. And the alcohol wasn't working. And so, and I shared with you before that I, I was, I had a moment where I was seeing people in bushes that I thought wanted to kill me. And so call it cocaine psychosis coincided with the opioid uh, uh, rapid progression. I was just fucked. Um, I, I couldn't think, dude. I couldn't, I couldn't think clearly. I couldn't talk clearly. I could not string a sentence together, man. And um, dude, what else can I say? It stopped working. I needed, I needed to try something different. So it was just like, it, it was just too much. It's also 15 years in, right? Or how many years in? Maybe 17. Yeah, 17 years in. Uh, was your business still working out? Was there any kind <laughs> of economic, like, was there an economic bottom too? Or was it just like, yeah. I can't do it anymore? Yeah, the, it, it, the, the walls were closing in on all sides. You know, I'd gone to, you know, for me, you know, making a few hundred grand a year for a fool like me was a big deal. And um, that was, that had been completely all but taken away. And so um, the drive was not for financial. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to live. It wasn't like, hey, I'm losing all my money, you know. But fuck, dude, I was dying. My heart was skipping beats. Um, I didn't give a shit about anything but trying, trying to live. Is there a way that I can possibly live and overcome this? I had no clue if I could do it. Well, the, the other thing, it's like, it's, I mean, whatever you enjoyed about making money or whatever, it's just another endorphin to pulling something off. You know what I mean? Like having a good business, having a good band, having good friends, having fun. These are things that we succeed in. Our brains are happy we do it. When there's no more happiness coming out of our brain, it's like that's when it gets very scary. You know what I mean? And very dark. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that, man, because... Now, I was told this, and I do believe this to be true. It's like all the love, all the love, all the compassion, all the money in the world is not going to get guys like you uh, better. And it's very true. So it's like all the, you, you know, no matter how much money I had or didn't have, uh, it was just all money did for me was it just fueled what I was doing. I'm nothing special uh, at all. I was just a really sick fucking drug addict. What about dealers? Like, I think it's also fascinating that you managed to basically pull off this ridiculous drug career with just with doctors, basically, right? I mean, you didn't have to deal with that many drug dealers. Well, on the cocaine side, yes. But on the pill side, I did have, towards the last five years, I got to share this fucking blurb with you, man. This dude was gnarly. He, he was supplying pills to some of the biggest motorcycle gangs in Southern California. He was in Costa Mesa. And uh, he would have fully sealed, I mean, fully sealed jars of 100, 200, 300, Norcos, Oxys. And so I would, I was a cat, obviously cash paid, never had anything fronted. This guy was heavy. I was there one day when this guy, he says, hang on, Z-Man, I got to take this call. And it was, it was, it's on speaker. And this guy, and, and, and the dealer's like, dude, so where's my money? He's like, dude, I'm going to have it for you in a couple of days. I swear to you, I got it. I got it. I got it. He goes, I'll tell you what. Full on fucking Joe Pesci. He goes, all right, Robert De Niro. He goes, like, keep your money. She's like, what? They keep your money. He goes, I'm going to be over an hour. I'm going to take this fucking broomstick. I'm going to shove it up your ass. I'm going to make you suck me off while I'm doing it. (laughs) And here's the thing. Here's the thing. He was serious. He would rather demoralize you and take away your manhood than take the money after he's been fucked. I was just like going, 
I, I called him T. I said, so T, uh, I'll never owe you any money, just so you know. And then, he la- and then he laughs after he tells the dude he's going to sodomize him while he gets a blowjob. He's like, yeah, Todd, you're so funny. I'm like, you know, note to self, get the broomstick ready. It's like, dude, it's insanity. He laughed at me and goes, dude, he's like, you're one of my best paying customers. You and I will never have a problem. And I said, in my mind, I'm like, I will, of course, never have a fucking problem with you, dude. Of course. It's ridiculous. So, so you, you fucking... You get in there, you are not sleeping, buckets of Seroquel, 50 nights in, you're ready to kill yourself, and that's when sleep comes? Yeah, sleep came on April 1st. I was like 44 days in, and, uh, you know, the skin never, it just didn't stop crawling, and um, when I got a little bit of sleep, I said, maybe there's a little bit of hope, and I was starting to hear a little bit of hope in the meetings, which was extremely, you know, equally, if not more vital to my, that little thing of going, you know, maybe me too. Maybe I, too, can recover just hearing a few common threads. Um, but I'll never forget the day. It was, it was probably 12 to 13 months in. My detox lasted over a year. Um, it, le- it finally left my um, – leaves your fingertips first, and then it came all the way down and left my toes. It's stinging. It finally went away. And I was – I celebrated. I was so happy and grateful. From I mean, I, I think that's amazing. I think um, it's so hard, you know, coming off of, of – anything coming off of drugs is very very painful in every different way you were so profoundly hooked on these pills that replace endorphins you know like you were totally slave to these ridiculous chemicals and the detox was so intense like you never used again right that was it yeah i've been so, i've been sober for since february 17th of 2007 isn't it so i mean first of all congratulations that's awesome. But isn't it so sad? And I mean, it's so crazy to for the people that, that relapse after that. I mean, I relapsed over and over and over again. I would go to treatment. I would go to detox. I would come back. I would not sleep. I would find sleep. And then I would use. And it's like, in your situation, you had dug such a hole. You know what I mean? This, do- this hole into misery. And you climb out of the hole and you're, you're pushing the sand over, and you know not to pull it over yourself. But, like, somebody that slips in those moments, that must be the most hopeless feeling in the world. And I know you've done a lot of, you know, service work and also professional work. Like, when do you ever see somebody in a similar situation? Like, how do you... You can tell them to have faith, and you could tell them, like, hold on to what you have because it's so precious. But, like, there's no way you can make it clear to somebody you got, I mean, you got lucky. And I mean, I don't know if it's lucky. It was the way it was meant to happen that you didn't go back, but it's like, thank God, man, you, you got out of it when you did and you let the healing come to you. Yeah. I, I wish I've often told people that I wish that I could invent a little pill that you take. It's not a narcotic, but the pill is called willingness. And when you take that willingness pill, you are basically willing to do anything and everything it takes to recover, and that would be an official cure for, for, uh, for addiction and alcoholism. However, that pill doesn't exist, and I'm not all that powerful. I can do my best to, to lead by, what I call it lead, just be an example to other people. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, what it comes down to, and I've had, I've had a lot of moments in sobriety where I have been so uncomfortable. It's like, God, you know, for a minute this sounds good. But my, my arithmetic, my math on using and drinking adds up to nothing but fucking horrible, right? So outlasting the pain, being part of a recovery community, and, and most importantly, being able to be transparent and honest with other men has been my saving grace. 
but it all boils down to this, bro. I have to have a willingness to not die and not use again versus a, the willingness or desire to drink again. And right. the moment that outweighs, if I want to drink and get loaded again more than stay sober, it's over. Right, right. I'll never be on a podcast with you again, dude. I'm fucking done. I'm dead. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and it's funny because, like, you know, you you became an interventionist and you've worked with tons of people and you've helped people get well. And uh, And I do this podcast and I hear from people all the time. And I know that there's nothing I can really do. You know what I'm saying? Like, because there is no willingness pill. You can, I mean, I know that when I finally got sober, it was just willingness. It was just desperation. Yeah. Like, I was so unhappy, and I was separated from my family, and I kept doing the same thing over and over and over again until finally I was like, fuck it. If I do this, it could work. You know what yeah. I mean? And, uh, and, and for the first time, I actually did it. You know, every, I, I never had a proper relapse because I never had properly gotten sober, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and when I finally got willing, it, it was, like, very magical. Um, it's like, what do you tell people who are, you know, straddling willingness, who might be able to be willing, but they might fuck it up? Like, how do you encourage willingness? And do you ever see what your, that your influence is actually useful? And I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. Being first off, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting out of the intervention work. I've done it for over 10 years and I've done hundreds of them all over the country. I'm getting out of that work entirely. It's just, it's just fucking taken so much out of me working with the unwilling and working with insanity is, is tough i prefer just sponsoring guys <laughs> sponsoring guys for fun and free um you know when it comes to talking with the or dealing with the unwilling i have i have a um a very simple idea of what what the goal is the goal is when someone is actively in the disease all i want is for he or she to give it to give the drug and the drink a rest hopefully in a treatment setting where they, where they get physically stable or medically stable enough to actually have an understanding that they have to change. I do not expect someone to be like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get sober. I'm just I'm racing to rehab. Treatment for me is a great place where people can be safe, God willing, for a short period of time while they start to have an idea of what tools to fucking use to stay alive. And that's my hope for anybody who is going into treatment or on the fence I will say this to your listeners, if there's anyone who's on the fence right now, if kind of like with you, man, uh, if, this, if the sober life sucked, if it was awful, I would go back to the old shit. Totally. The fucked up thing is that was something that Chris used to say on the show all the time. He would say that all the time, and then he, I don't know what happened with him, you know what I mean? Like something happened, and... You know, he, he had much different consequences than I did. He was much younger than me, and he went back, and he didn't tell anybody, and then it caught up with him. You know, but I do believe that when he would say that on the show, which is that he was happier sober than when he was using, it was true, and ultimately he was miserable using. So, Yeah, yeah I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you said that. Uh, I said it before earlier that I hadn't experienced any real happiness or joy Joy being, happiness I think is intermittent, but overall, I think joy is more of an internal thing. For the most part, I'm pretty joyful today. Uh, for years, how's this? There was no fucking joy. It was pseudo joy, bullshit mask, maybe just very small increments of thinking that I'm happy, but not even being remotely close to true happiness or joy. And that's what this fucking disease does. It robs us and depletes us of anything remotely cool like that. It's just gone, man. Forget it. Totally. Another another really powerful thing in the film was uh, 
you know, back to Bradley Knoll, his family, like the the impact of his death on his family was so crazy. You know, uh, and it was so... I mean, recently, we it was the anniversary of Chris's death. And for the first time, his family came on the show. And I went to his parents' house. And I talked to his parents. Um, and when I saw Bradley's father in your film, it was like seeing the same thing. And basically what he said was, uh, I, I never will get over it, uh, this death. And, and then he's taught... I guess he raised Bradley's son. The, is that what happened? Yeah. The grandparents raised Bradley's son, and I guess the son, Jacob, was struggling with drugs. And did they call you in professionally? Did they call yeah. you in personally? How did that happen? It was a combination. First off, I mean, they, they didn't raise Jacob entirely. They, they certainly had a, uh, a great deal of time with Jacob in his early years, but he was with his mom for the most part. Um, I basically quit my job, um, you know, to to intervene and to work full-time with Jacob because Papa Noel was just like, we can't, I can't lose him. I can't lose him. And um, I can't go through it again. And, and like you said, um, the, the loss of his son, it, 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 it's visible just on his face. And I love that man tremendously. And uh, most of us, most, I, I'm like, I'll speak to the whole community. We all love Papa, uh, Jim Noel. We love him tremendously because he's a man of... Um, He's just a man that's not only courageous, but he's the real deal. He has integrity and honor, and um, he's lived in a way that I wish I could live my whole life, but I can't change that. He's just a good example of a man. How's that? Um, so, so yeah, for any parent out there who loses their kid, uh, the pain, I think, never goes away. I don't think that I, I believe that that's uh, permanent. Well, and you worked with Jacob, and then the fucked up thing, and, and maybe I'm too negative with this, when he, when Papa Noel says to you, "We can't lose Jacob," the fucked up thing is he could. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's not yeah. his choice, and it's and it's it certainly is. not on you to make Jacob be sober. You know what yeah. I mean? And what a fucking trip that is because it's yeah. like he could lose Jacob because drug addicts fucking use and die, and it's like I, I it's ugh, it's so heavy. You know what I mean? You got yeah. to work with Jacob and help him out, but it's on Jacob, right? It's not on you. Well, yeah, for sure. I think, I think too, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself because of, you know, just the storyline. You know, there was a time, you know, when Brad was alive and he tried calling. I wish I could have been there. And first off, I wasn't a sober guy, but I was good at talking to my friends and talking them off the cliffs and on the edge of a cliff. Uh, could I have had any impact on that? Who the fuck knows? That's so long ago. But I did put an exorbitant amount of I think pressure, and at the end of the day, we cannot. We don't. We're not that powerful. I cannot get you or anybody sober. Exactly. I can't. I fucking can't. Man. Yes. No, I get it. It's just a lot. It was a lot of pressure, but it was still also incredibly beautiful. That because uh, I, you know, I saw that movie, and I, and I've, I've, you know, I was, I experienced what you went through in in your story, and 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 Bradley was Bradley, you know what I mean? He was going to do what he was going to do, and you were fucked up yourself. You, what were you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it, you never know what could have happened, but you couldn't have... You weren't the person that could have swept in and saved him, and, and the fact that you could be there for Jacob was, was very powerful and cool and um, interesting, you know what I mean? Because, obviously, this scene, this family, this world meant so much to you, and so the fact that you could be trusted and you could 
do your best. It was beautiful, you know? Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And it, the, 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 the best part of it all, the byproduct is that, you know, he's, he's clean and sober today and he's absolutely thriving in his life and he's creating killer music and he's going to Long Beach state, finishing his degree. And I get to witness the miracle of sobriety working in his life and equally as important as I get to witness the uh, healing and the uh, levity that it's given uh, his grandparents. Right. And you get to like kind of have Bradley back in a weird sort of way through, through him in, in some weird kind of osmosis sort of way. Uh, I, I, I think about him all the time and I've got a couple of dreams, a couple where he just said, man, I'm proud of all you guys for making changes. I've had those little stupid dreams, never know where they come from. God-given little moments where we have a, a cool little message from someone that we loved. And it's awesome that you lo- you're looking out for your friend's kid. You know, that's just period, plain and simple. Like, that's a great <laughs> gift, you know. Uh, I'd, I'd walk through fire for him, and there's a lo- there'd be a big line of people behind me who would do the same thing to, uh, to do anything they can to, to, uh, to help that young man. And, uh, but he's got all the help he needs now, man. He, he's got program, and he's doing the deal. And sponsoring guys, shit, man. Uh, whoever would have thought. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. And, uh, and I can't, I mean, I've really, really enjoyed uh, talking with you, kind of hanging out virtually. Because this Dopey Nation, you have to know, me and Todd are on Zoom trying the new Mike Mart Dopey recording technology. <laughs> and I'm very into it. I think it's great. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, but the most important thing about Dopey, besides living a happy, joyous, and free life, is a fucked up Dopey story. So before we're done, do you want to tell any fucked up, ridiculous drug story? Oh, my God. Uh, oh, fuck God. I had to go through my mental Rolodex here. A fucked up drug story. doesn't matter what drug I was on. I couldn't care less. Anything. Okay. Just a good uh, one. This is one of my favorites. And uh, I was, in fact, I just started on the op- opioids. Uh, my back surgery was in February of 1990. I started being prescribed this shit in October. I'm at a Christmas party in Del Mar. And... Um, with a bunch of guys that I surf with. It's in a really cool little house. And, the, and, and the, my buddy's girlfriend has made this bitchin' dinner. And everyone is just having a great time. Just cocktails, nothing. And I'm about four or five cocktails deep. And I, and I, I reach over to my friend. I said, hey, man, I go, if I don't pack my fucking beak. And by the way, for those of you listening, that just means you know, get some coke. If I, don't, if I don't get my beak packed within five minutes, I'm going to stick my dick in the mashed potatoes. And... Like, I don't like, like I don't like where this story's going. He's like, continue. Well, and, and I'm like I, I'm not I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I, I, if I don't get my beak back soon because the light was on, I, I, I'm gonna stick my pipe in the mashed potatoes. Another friend of ours rolls up. He says, "What's going on? What the hell's wrong with Z man?" He's like, "Hey, he says he's gonna stick his dick in the mashed potatoes. If he doesn't get any coke." He's like, "Hey, this isn't that kind of party, Todd. Don't do that." <laughs> and I and that's all I needed to hear. So is that right? Bullshit. Walked up, dropped my pants, stuck my pipe in the mashed potatoes. Everyone's standing there with their food, about 20 people, and, and everyone's, no one's talking. Jaws are dropped. And I just go, what, hasn't everybody, hasn't everyone uh, uh, already had their seconds? And that was it. I just, she threw me out of the house. And, <laughs> and I, I went and got a couple of eight balls, and I woke up with uh, starch nuts. How's that? There you go. That's perfect. Todd, thank you so much for coming <laughs> through. It's been a joy. Um, L- likewise. Thank you so much for having me, man. I, I keep doing what you're doing. I really love Love the message and all the shit you're doing. I, I love it. Please stay in touch, and thank you so much, man. Fucking you got cool. it, brother. Have, have a great day, man. All right. I mean, that was a total joy for me to have this guy on the show. Obviously, he is uh, 
basically as far gone. He's as far gone into the world of pills as I've ever heard. And coming off of the great Colleen MC's Patreon, we have the Pill of the Month week on Dopey, which is exciting. And um, the movie is called The Long Way Back, which is the look at uh, Todd Z. Manzalkin's life. And I love it because it's so, not only is it so crazy dopey, but you really get a great look into Long Beach and the punk scene and Sublime. And then you hear Todd's story. So I would check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. It's free. I totally recommend it. And, uh, and Todd's story was very hopeful. And recently I was disturbed when somebody told me how hopeful they thought Dopey was. But I guess Dopey has always been hopeful, you know, masquerading as a dark and dangerous place. What do you guys think? Write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com because emails and voicemails and reviews are the lifeblood of Dopey. I love hearing from the Dopey Nation, and I'm sure you guys love hearing from yourselves. And on that note, I will read an email. It is from Relaxosaurus, and he says, Hi, Dave. My name is Andrew, and I am a heroin addict. I had a year clean in March after a six-year run. Before that run, I was four years clean, but relapsed around the beginning of the COVID lockdown in my area, and in reality, I was just a dry drunk or a clean addict during my supposed clean time. I am now starting over after about a five-month run, day six clean today, and I am dedicating myself to addressing the spiritual deficit that I am now convinced has led me to where I am today. I have been running from something inside me for a long time. Nothing I have tried has ever helped me outrun whatever it is, but I have never tried to deal with it head on. It always seemed too hard, too daunting, too obvious, too whatever. But what I've been doing doesn't work. I know that and have for years. Anyway, that is the basic outline of my story. Obviously, there are tons of details, some funny, some horribly mundane, not included here. I'm sure you can guess many of them. I have a question for you if you have the time to answer it. If not, I won't take it personally, obviously. I have been with my wife for over 10 years. She doesn't know that I am an addict. I didn't tell her I was clean when we met because I thought my sobriety was rock solid. I think this belief was a big part of why I relapsed. I didn't tell her I relapsed and used for six years and haven't told her about this relapse. She knows I have a history with drugs, but she doesn't know that they were ever a problem. I want to tell her, but I am terrified. I am worried that it will just hurt her and won't accomplish anything. I am worried that I will use my admission as an easy way to absolve myself of some of the shame and guilt that I feel instead of dealing with the root causes that have pushed me to use. What do you think? How do you decide whether to tell something tell someone something that will hurt them. I know that telling her will make my life easier, assuming she sticks around, which may not be the case, obviously, but it will make hers a lot harder, at least in the short to medium term. Maybe part of my problem is that I don't feel like I can make decisions like this myself. Maybe my inability to ask people for what I need, in this case, help with my sobriety, has led me to the complicated life I've backed myself into. I'm rambling at this point, but my brain is starting to unwrap some of my bullshit, and it's all coming out at once. Any advice, good vibes, constructive criticism, etc., is appreciated. Thank you for everything you do and have done. Dopey was a big part of my decision to kick last year and will be a big part of my recovery this time around. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. All the best to you, Dave, and congrats on five years. 
Andrew. P.S. Sorry that this is a little disorganized. I've always found it hard to write coming off of a kick. Yes, Andrew, I agree. It's very, very hard to put uh, sentences together coming off of a kick. Even in five years, I can barely put sentences together well. Um, I appreciate the email, and I appreciate the question, and it's a complicated question, and I think the beginning of the email says it all, which is that you are operating at a spiritual deficit, and now I think it's time to plug spirituality in. So, like, maybe this episode, the theme is some sort of 12-step spirituality. I recommend going to meetings. I recommend getting a sponsor. I recommend doing the 12 steps. Um, I recommend telling your wife. If you love your wife, I recommend telling her because then you're on the same page as her. Because, like, I don't know how she didn't know that you were using for that long or that you stopped using or that you relapsed. I think that's nuts. If you tell her, it could hurt. But I think ultimately it will lead you guys back together. But I am not a fucking advice columnist, and I am not, you know, that's just my gut. But you know better than I do. Get a sponsor. Ask your sponsor. And obviously your situation is, is more complex than I can answer. So with the limited information I have, that's my advice. But the bigger advice is go to a meeting and get a sponsor. Talk to your sponsor. First thing I need to say is we need more voicemails. We need funny, dopey voicemails. Seven minutes and under. Under seven minutes is the sweet spot. I have a voicemail from New Zealand. Uh, I'm just going to play it, and then I'm going to discuss it. Okay. This is it. This is Sylvie from New Zealand recording a voicemail for Dopey. I'm at the beach. Um, hey, you better beep out my name because there's hardly any people in New Zealand, and the only other ones called Sylvia are underneath the age of five or Chilean. Um, I hope you can hear the water. I was just listening to the latest episode. It's July 18th. And I can't stand it any longer. You have to, well, no, you don't have to stop saying. But I can't stand it when you say out of pocket, meaning the person that you're trying to get on the show is not responding or is not going to do the show. Because it doesn't mean that, Dave. It means when you don't have enough money. Or not exactly when you don't have enough money, but it's like you say, oh, um, I, got, uh, I got charged $50 for that speeding fine. So I guess I'm out of pocket $50. That's, that's how you use that phrase. But I don't want you to stop using it incorrectly. I just want you to know that you're wrong. So, um, yeah, that's just some advice for you from New Zealand. I really love your podcast, and um, I love everything you say, especially when you're wrong. Okay. Bye. All right, Sylvie from New Zealand. I'm not going to bleep your name. Come on, give me a break. I'm sure there's plenty of Sylvies in New Zealand by the water. Now, let me just deal with this out-of-pocket deal. I definitely know that out-of-pocket means when you have to pay for it yourself, meaning I had to go out-of-pocket for this equipment. I had to go out-of-pocket for this doctor's visit. However, Sylvie from New Zealand, if you ever watched possibly the greatest television show in the history of the world, The Wire you would know that when someone was missing on the wire, they would be out of pocket at the moment. As in, I don't know where Stringer is. He out of pocket. You know, that kind of thing. 
So when I use the phrase, I use it like the wire uses it. I don't say I'm going out of pocket for expenses. And the funny thing is that Sam, dopey producer, also hates it when I say they be out of pocket or whatever I say. And now Sam says it too because it's so... It's such a beautiful phrase to say when someone is missing, they are out of pocket, meaning I can't get a hold of them, Sylvie. But I have to say that I love this voicemail. And if you ever catch me in something that you think I've said wrong or isn't proper or is totally wrong, send in an email. Call me out. Send in a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Sylvie, I appreciate uh, the, the kind words and the critical ones. Now, before we go, we're going to do a couple of things. Uh, Z-Man, Todd Z-Man Zalkins, thank you for coming on the show. Um, years ago, when Chris was still alive, and I would play songs here and there on the show, somebody wrote in and they wanted me to play Sublime's Garden Grove. So here we go, Sublime Garden Grove. It's a song that always reminds me of Todd. So in honor of uh, all the fallen people before us, here's Garden Grove. Took this trip to Garden Grove. It smelled like glue inside the van. Oh yeah, this ain't no fucking reggae party. Five dollars at the door. It gets so real sometimes. Who wrote my rhyme? I've got the microwave. Got the VCR And I got the deuce, deuce In the trunk of my car Oh yeah If you only knew All the love that I found It's hard to keep My soul on the ground You're a fool Don't fuck around with my dog Stuck under my shoe It's that smell inside the van It's my bed sheet covered with sand Sitting through a shitty band Getting dog shit on my hand Getting hassled by the man Waking up to an alarm Sticking needles in your arm Picking up trash on the freeway Feeling depressed like every day Leaving without making a sound Picking my dog up at the pound Living in a tweaker pad Getting yelled at by my dad Saying I'm happy when I'm not Finding roaches in the pot I do They're waiting for 
All right, I feel like my dad hasn't been on the show in a little while, so I'm calling my dad for the Dopey Review of the Week. Hello? Hey, Dad. You're on the show. Oh, hi. Hi, David. How are you doing? But that's your fake hello for the show now that you're on the show? It's not a fake hello. I'm saying hello to you. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? We, you just asked You asked me how I was doing before I told you you were on the show, and I said I was doing okay. So this is a fake how are you doing for the Dopey Nation. No. I, what I think it is is me being old and not remembering that I just asked you how you were doing before. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm here. And how are you doing, Dad? I feel like you haven't checked in on the show in a little while, and I'm sure the Dopey Nation is worried about uh, your failing health and uh, aging brain. So how are you doing, Dad? Well, I'm, I'm doing well. I, my aging brain is, is uh, it could be better. It could be better. But I really, I really was worried about you, you know, that, uh, uh, the, that argument we had uh, about uh, God and the higher power, which, of course, I think we both agree exactly the same way, basically. But I was upset that you were angry at me. Uh, and I thought that, that you were overdoing it, which got me nervous. But I think you're, you're. I think I have listened to you recently, and you sound, you sound, you sound much better, much better. I think, I think you're, you're okay. And by the way, that bottle of Nyquil is here. I can't believe, I can't believe that you bring this up on the show. How, how embarrassing. Well, come on. I think uh, I think it's important that we keep this up up and up and, uh, and talk First the of truth. all, first of all, just so you know, I can go yeah. buy Nyquil or heroin or vodka or whiskey whenever I want. So you're holding on to that bottle of Nyquil does nothing to me number 1. Number 2, I, I didn't I haven't bought Nyquil again. I I certainly haven't bought heroin or whiskey. Number 3, didn't I sound? Didn't I apologize and sound completely sober about not wanting to get so angry? And didn't I? Didn't we deal with this already? Yeah, you did. You did. But I, I didn't. You didn't give me a chance to this comment beforehand because this is the first time I'm I'm here since that. And of course, I'm not saving this bottle of Nyquil. Uh, you know, keep it from you. It's that, that was. That, I just said it's here. That's all. Anyway, uh, I've been looking for it. That's the funny part. Is I've been wondering what happened to it. Oh, yeah, well, it's upstairs. <laughs> it's upstairs. Uh, and I haven't touched it, so that's for sure. Uh, I, I guess I should get rid of it. Why? It's NyQuil. It's medicine. You don't need to get rid of it. It's not like finding weed. It's NyQuil. If you, have a ba- if you have a bad cold, you could take it. Doesn't it have one of those date things that Linda was throwing out everything that was old here? Does it have a best use date? See, this is my dad is a very, very interesting character. I have to say that. Uh, when we were at his house, we found products from, you know, three years ago, five years ago, six years ago, and uh, it was pretty bad. You know, did you go? Did it go back twelve years or not that far? Back? No, because I think five years ago we threw out the stuff that was five years old. But oh. but I but the thing is that um, when we were up there, um, I mean, th- th- this is where it got scary. We came into the house, and there was a piece of chicken on the counter that he had bought the day before that was cooked that he thought could sit there. But So I was nervous for him. And then he also had lasagna sitting out for 12 hours, so that was nervous for us. But the thing that makes my dad so interesting is that when we did the show at the lake, he wanted me to 
say how funny it was that the food expired, which is why he brought it up now, right? <laughs> no, I will. No, that's not why I brought it up. I was just curious if NyQuil had a, a best use date. That's all. I think you have a few years. I think you have a good window of opportunity with NyQuil. But admit it that you wanted you you like the shtick. I Funny. Yeah, I thought that was good shtick. Yeah. You, you like the shtick. And, and, and uh, he has a, a lady friend at the lake who got very defensive when I was mocking him for keeping old food. So it's very interesting stuff. Again, everybody's trying to protect me from you. That's it. You know, like uh, the, I'm the underdog. Remember that. Little do they know how much you enjoy the abuse, which is the irony <laughs> yeah. of the whole thing. Anyway, Dad, obviously I love you, and obviously your brain isn't that atrophied, and thank God I'm not taking NyQuil, and yes, I've been angrier than I should be, but I've totally confessed to my, you know, it's been a tough summer. You know, I think it's been a tough summer for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yep. Yep. Now let's cut to the chase, Dad. This has been an amazing appearance, but let's cut to the chase. We need the dopey review of the week. All right, so which one do you want? Read the controversial one. Well, wait a minute. Which one is that? The one about 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 Linda. Um. All right, hold on. Ah, here it is. Um, new listener by Sober Farm D. Is that the one? I don't know. Just read it. Yeah, here it is. Are you sure you want me to read this? Yeah, read it. It's very controversial. Linda will never yeah. listen to this episode. Linda's not going to listen to this. No, she'll never listen to this. Oh, well, I, I don't know if I should read. Maybe she gets some anonymous person to read. All right, anyway. I am a relatively, relatively new listener, and after listening to the newest episode, which is a while ago, I feel a certain kind of way about the fact that Linda doesn't seem so supportive of your recovery. I don't like the way she downplayed your five years, and it makes me wonder if she even buys into the fact that addiction is a deadly disease. Wow. And if she even knows that you are actually a living, breathing miracle. A miracle. Yeah, miracle. Yeah, well, we can talk about this. Unsupportive spouses are a peeve of mine, but honestly, I love the podcast, and it it has added too much to my, I don't know if it means, too much to my newly sober life. Thanks so much. Well, you want me to make a comment on this? Yes, please. I think Linda was one of the people who actually saved your life. Definitely, definitely. Linda is one of the people. Linda was probably like the biggest influence on my life that I got sober. And Linda definitely appreciates the fact that I'm sober more than anybody except maybe you and uh, the kids. But I but I appreciate the 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 review anyway. You want to read another review or I want to tell I want to tell a quick story when we're at we're at the lake and, uh, and and we're trying to figure out what to give Nora for lunch. So I'm looking for food in the cabinet, and I find a, a box of macaroni and cheese. So I, I make the box of macaroni and cheese, and it doesn't have a date. So I figure we're in the clear, right? And yes. um, until I take the powdered cheese out, and if you've ever cooked macaroni and cheese, you know the, the cheese is kind of a pale powdered orange or yellow or white. This cheese was a powdered brown. And my dad looks at it, and I said, Dad, Look at this cheese. And he goes, maybe you burnt it. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. There was something else today. Somebody tweeted that the world should be like Lucky Charms and Forces Flakes. Very good together. That was me. Oh, you tweeted that. Sorry. Well, there's, they're selling 
a, a cereal that contains both Lucky Charms and Frosted Flakes. And I oh, thought... That's, that's what I did. Well, I think your, your cereal mix is brilliant, Dad. Have I ever poo-pooed you? I mean, sometimes your choices of your choices are not good choices, but sometimes they are. You don't really take any time to think about it. You just throw it all in the fucking Tupperware. Well, I try to make it look good, too. You, you do? Know, like the that's a thing? The, the layers make it look good, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, do you want to read another review? And the point of that, do you understand my point of why, of how Lucky Charms and Frosted Flakes could be a good example for the world? No, explain. Because the world is divided. People are separated and nobody can see anybody else's point of view. And if we could all coexist the way those cereals do, the world could be a much sweeter place, Dad. Well, that's very, that's very, very sweet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is true. Yeah, the world should be like Lucky Charms and Forced Flakes. We got a big problem. All right, all right. Enough with your political ranting. Do you have another review? All right, go ahead. What's next? You tell uh, me. Uh, which one? The Dopey the Real Deal? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, Dopey the Real Deal by Margaret, a.k.a. Margo, in L.A. Hearing Chris and Dave's story on This American Life hit me like a bomb. At 30 years plus of sobriety, I am not too sober to listen, identify, and learn something new from the entirety of Dopey Nation, starting with Dave and his hilarious, stupid ass, tell it like it is, and often touching shares and guests. Just awesome. I love that review. I love that they call me a stupid ass. And speaking of which, do you know what piece of news I really enjoyed hearing? What? That Kristaps Porzingis tore his meniscus. Poor, poor Porzingis. Looks like Dallas didn't get the better of New York in that trade after all, because Porzingis is as fragile as everybody said. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Though, remember, I had I had both meniscuses torn on one on each knee, and that's true. My career was over. That's it. I was finished. Do you predict yeah. Porzingis coming back from this? He'll he'll be able to come back. The meniscus is not that bad, but you're right. He seems to be very fragile, though. Very fragile. Just like, got, just like you, Dad. Very fragile. I am not fragile. I mean, I don't want to say anything, but I fell the other day, and I thought that my knee was not going to make it, but I'm perfectly fine. Wait, where did I'm you good... fall? What happened? I was walking in the woods, and there was this root that I, my shoe got under the root, and I fell f- f- face down and, oh. and landed on my knee. Oh. But I walked it all. It's, it's good. I mean, it was a little scary. I have to be more careful where I'm walking. But you know who is really good? This Luka Doncic is a great player. Wow, he is good. All right, save it for your podcast, Dad. Okay, just say. I, I think maybe you should start your podcast. Were you okay when you fell down? Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, I'm not. I'm not doing any podcasts. Yeah, this is your podcast. Is 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 all I need. That's for sure. Wait, all right. Do you want me to read another one? No. We're okay. One more. One more review. Um, I, well, I'm trying to find, <laughs> never mind. I was going to try to find the one where he talked about me, but I won't. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one did you want to read? <laughs> All right, yeah, I will. All right, what the hell? I Love Dopey <laughs> by E. Tumbletee. I guess he's okay. E. Tumbletee. This is a great podcast, even if you're not an addict. I heard about it on This American Life. 
and have been listening for a year. I look forward to each episode and it has gotten me through this pandemic. There is something very comforting about Dave and I love his interviews, his dad and his family. Thank you. So that's good. <laughs> that's very nice, Dad. And I think I think you're going to really like this episode. The guy on it was really good. You're going to be like, he was terrific. Oh, yeah. I want the Dolby Nation to know that I know I don't hear the And you always put me on on the end. So I don't know what the person said, you know, beforehand. So, I, you know, I can't, you know, I couldn't comment on it. So, yeah, you said he's good. Yeah, I think he was great. I think you'll really like him. He was smart, well-spoken. You'll get a kick out of him. All right, Dad, I love having you on the show. Uh, you sound good. You know, enjoy the rest of your summer upstate. And uh, will well, you be, you'll you be around I'm next week? I'll, I'll no. I'll come home on the 18th. I'll see you that weekend. All right, you're coming home on the 18th. You'll see me that weekend. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I love you. Good night. All right, I love you and uh, love to everybody out there in the Dopey Nation. All right, why don't toodles. we? Why don't you say yeah? Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Uh, I'm gonna say stay strong, uh, Dopey Nation, and I, I tried very hard not to use that word on your show. And uh, toodles for Chris. All right, thanks, Dad. Okay. <laughs>
Thank you. 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 Thank you.